Bibles, please, to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to begin today a section with, within a section. We find ourselves now in the second half of the book of Ephesians. Ephesians is six chapters long. Of course, most of you know the original chapter and verse divisions were not there. When Paul wrote this, it was a letter that was written to a church, and he didn't send 40 or 50 or 100 copies of it so everybody could have one. This would have been given to the leaders of the church, and they would have read it out loud, and then I'm sure after they would have read it out loud, they would have read it out loud again, and then they would have begun to study through the details of it. But Paul wrote this letter with two basic halves to it. The first half was to encourage these Christians in the church in Ephesus to remember who they were in Christ and all the privileges that had been given to them. They had been chosen before the foundation of the world to trust Jesus, to be raised from the dead, and to be given new life. And they had been granted an inheritance in Christ. They had become sons and daughters of God, adopted into his family. And twice, as we saw in Ephesians chapters 1 and 2, Paul clarifies that there's a sense to which they were already seated with Christ in heaven. That is to say, the privileges that they had been given in Christ were sure. And one day, God would bring them to completion. He delighted in them by giving them his son and rescuing them from their sin to bring them back to himself. And then in the second half of the letter, he draws out implications or applications as to how they are to walk in light of all that they had been given. And just to remind us in chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And so for the next several months, as we go through Ephesians chapters 4 through 6, we will be discussing what it looks like to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, this high calling, a calling that was achieved only through the death of the Son of God, a high calling indeed. Today, we will focus our attention in verses 7 through 10. So I've said that we've begun this new section in chapters 4 through 6, but in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 16, we have sort of a section within a section. And this is a really critical portion, not just of Paul's letter to the Ephesian church, but truly of the entire New Testament. For in this section, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 16, we find out what it is that we are to be doing. That is to say, as Christians who make up this church, as members, participants in this local church, what is it that we are to be doing? Is it just the chosen few who perhaps have a Bible degree who are supposed to be doing things? Is it the people who really like to practice hospitality? You know, like the people who 
seem to always have food on hand in their fridge and their houses always seem to be in order, but the rest of us are sort of like just flying by the seat of our pants all the time? Is it, is it just those people? What about the people who like to work with kids when perhaps most of us can't stand that thought right now? Maybe it's for the people who like to get their hands dirty and set up chairs and take care of people when they have needs, but the rest of us really don't like those things at all. Maybe we like looking at the people or listening to the people who are good at teaching and instructing us, but it freaks us out to even think about getting behind a microphone and saying anything publicly. What is it that that each of us are to be doing? And then what is the purpose of all of that? So we're going to talk in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 16, about the purpose of the church and, and our individual part in it. That will become increasingly clear in the coming weeks. But we're going to get a running start at it today, where Paul once again grounds the Ephesian church, these believers, in who they are. I said to you as we finished chapter 3, where Paul really summed up this big argument as to who we are in Christ, all these privileges we have in Christ, that it's it's like whenever somebody begins to affirm you and encourage you and it starts to get a little uncomfortable after a while because they say so many nice things about you. But Paul didn't just cut it off at chapter 3. He didn't just sort of turn the falsing of promises and blessings off. Every once in a while, Paul comes and and turns the faucet back on, reminds the people of who they are and the privileges that they've been given. I would liken this to family. You don't tell your spouse that you love them on your honeymoon and you never tell them again. You tell them all the time. For most of us, every day. And for a lot of us, multiple times a day. In my nuptials, somewhere it must have been written as an addendum that if I didn't tell my wife I love her every time I get off the phone, I get in trouble. And so I've learned that whenever I get off the phone with her that I have to say I love you because I will answer for it later. And I enjoy it, by the way. I'm not criticizing. We we say it all the time. It's it's a recommittal. It's it's a reminder that that I'm hers and, and she's mine. As my new sons came home from Ethiopia seven months ago, they had a hard time receiving love. Whenever they would take a hug, if they would take a hug, they would sort of back their way toward us. They would never face us, and they would have this very distraught look on their face, and it would last like a millisecond, and they would run off and do something else. Now, if we don't tuck them in for five minutes and do like a tickle thing and tuck the sheets the right way and kiss them the right way and hug them and then there's these other rituals that we go through now, then it's not enough and they won't go to sleep. And what they've learned over time in in seven short months is that the trauma of the past is gone. And now they have people around them who love them and embrace them and they enjoy that kind of talk. But it's interesting that when when Paul turns the faucet back on and reminds us of the love of God, what he's done for us in Christ, we can just gloss over it. Maybe because it seems like an old story that's not relevant to our lives. Let's get on to the things we should be doing. Perhaps subtly, unconsciously, we don't really believe it. 
But before Paul launches more into what we are to be doing, the stuff that we really want to get to, Paul reminds us of the most important thing. And that is, not what we are going to do for God, but what he has done for us. So, in this really critical portion of the entire New Testament, where Paul clarifies for us what the church is to be doing and the role that each of us has to play in the doing, he begins the section within the section by turning the faucet on once again and reminding them what God has done for them. This is critical in understanding the story of God. We did not initiate it. We didn't write it. We did not make ourselves participants in it. God did. God is always the initiator. God comes after us in grace. And subtly, we will see that again today. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 10, we will talk for the next few weeks about Jesus, who is the head of the church, and how we are to respond to him as his people. This is the word of the Lord, beginning in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, the Bible says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean? But they had also descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And though we will not cover these verses today, Let's read down through verse 16. What are the gifts that Christ gave? He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the word of the Lord. After today, we will discuss what the gifts are for each of us and how we are to understand them and employ them in the mission of the church, which is to make disciples into maturity for the glory of Jesus Christ, the head of the church. But Paul begins this section in verses 7 through 10 today, our focus for today, by once again reminding them who they are and what they have been given. The first thing that Paul says to the church in verses 7 through 10 is that Jesus Christ blesses and cares for his church. In fact, I would say that that in many ways is the summary of these verses. Jesus Christ blesses and cares for his church. I think some of us, even if we wouldn't say it out loud, even if we wouldn't actually put words to it, believe that Jesus died for us was resurrected, the gospel, and he went back to heaven, and now he's just kind of left it up to us, that we're to work really hard, 
figure out all of his rules by reading this rule book we call the Bible, and we're supposed to be really faithful. And he's up in heaven, and he's basically disappointed with us most of the time. He's peering over the battlements of heaven, watching the drama of of human history play out, and specifically the role of the church in human history, and basically he's just kind of disappointed in the way we're making it happen. But this is not the picture that the Bible presents. Jesus did not complete his ministry when he ascended back to heaven and sat down by the Father. He did not have a big sigh of relief and say, I'm glad that's over. Let's see how they do. No. Jesus still ministers on behalf of his people. And though he does have commands for us, though he does call us to obedience, though he has left a mission for us, he makes sure it comes to pass. He has provided all that we need to bring it to pass. And before Paul launches into what the church is to be doing, he reminds the church of what they have been given. Jesus Christ blesses and cares for his church. Do you believe that? Do you really believe that the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, loves you so much that he doesn't just call you to obedience, he enables it. That he hasn't just given you a mission, which all of us must critically pursue, but he provides the means so that it can come to pass. Jesus loves you that much. He loves us that much. That he doesn't just call us to obedience, something that's so very high, this, this, this high calling, this, this manner of, of walking which is difficult that we all struggle with. But he's with us every step of the way. Paul wants the Ephesian church to grow in maturity. We will see that in the coming weeks. But he wants them to understand that the call to maturity is not a call to solo living. It's not a call to just gut it out. They are to remember who they are, what they've been given, and I think by implication, rely upon Jesus all the time. So in verse 7, Paul begins by reminding them that to each of them was given grace. Now, grace can, can be like power, that Christ gives us sustenance, the ability to obey, that he forgives and and keeps us close to himself, that he enables us. But sometimes whenever the word grace is used, it, it means something specific, like a specific kind of gift. Peter talks about this in his first epistle, that to each of us is given a gift to use for the good of others. That is called a grace. That gift is a grace. So, of course, all of us who have trusted Jesus are blessed with grace. We are enabled to obey God and to to stay close to Him relationally. But Paul means something more than just blessing or enablement. Paul means that to each one of us, 
all of us, was given some kind of specific gift. This means that you have been given what you need, some kind of gift to to bless other people and to bring glory to God. And as we will go further into this section, which extends from verses 7 down through verse 16, we will find that each of us should be employing that specific gift or gifts, perhaps plural, that the mission of the church might be accomplished, that we might bring God glory through making disciples. But though there is a promise given here in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7, I think there's a subtle implication that there's a calling upon our lives too. Because if you're given a gift, you should not squander it. We will take time in the coming weeks to explore what the New Testament has to say about these gifts, what, what your gifts might be. We will look at a couple of sections in Paul's writing which outlines what those gifts might be. But I think those, those lists of gifts that Paul writes in his letters are just suggestive. They're probably not comprehensive. And I guess to make it very simple, I can say this. Each of you has been equipped to bless other people for the glory of God. Now, you've been called to it, for sure. But the calling is undergirded. It's it's founded upon a gift that Christ has given to you. And though we will talk more about this in the weeks to come, This means that it wasn't given to you so you could draw attention to yourself. Why did Christ leave the gifts? Well, in the near context at the end of chapter 3, Paul says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. That's our passion that God might receive glory. So in the using of our gifts, and the employment of our gifts, the goal is always that God will be glorified and that others will be blessed. We'll see more about that soon. In verses 8 through 10, Paul provides some foundational thoughts to this idea that Jesus Christ blesses and cares for his church. Or perhaps, to make it very simple, how has he done that? Well, in verse 8, Paul clarifies that Jesus has conquered evil. In verse 8, Paul says, Therefore it says, the Scriptures say, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. The clarifying thought that Paul brings before us in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8, is that Jesus has conquered evil. When he says at the beginning of verse 8 that it says, he's referring back to Psalm 68. So let's turn there together. Psalm 68 is a psalm of David, the great king. And in this psalm, David distinguishes between how God blesses the righteous, but punishes or sets aside the wicked. So David says in verse 1 of Psalm 68, God shall arise. His enemies shall be scattered. And those who hate him shall flee before him. 
as smoke is driven away, so you shall drive them away. As wax melts before fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. But then notice how the righteous are distinguished in verse 3. But the righteous shall be glad. They shall exult before God. They shall be jubilant with joy. God will punish the wicked. But God will bless his people to such an extent that their lives will be characterized by exultation and joy. In verse 7, David the king says, O God, when you went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, Selah, the earth quaked. The heavens poured down rain before God, the one of Sinai, before God, the God of Israel. Rain in abundance, O God, you shed abroad. You restored your inheritance as it languished. Your flock found a dwelling in it, and your goodness, O God, you provided for the needy. God always blesses his people. Look in verse 15. O mountain of God, mountain of Bashan, O many peaked mountain, mountain of Bashan, why do you look with hatred, O many peaked mountain, at the mountain that God desired for his abode? Yes, where the Lord will dwell forever. The chariots of God are twice ten thousand, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them. Sinai is now in the sanctuary. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train, and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. We don't have time to talk about all these verses and what they all mean. But verse 18 is the verse from which Paul draws the quotation in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train, and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. Now remember, Psalm 68 is primarily about distinguishing between the unrighteous and the righteous, God's enemies and God's covenant people. God will punish the wicked, and he will take the spoils of the wicked and give them over to his people. We saw this in ancient cultures. A, a general would take his army, let's say perhaps in Rome, and go to a far land, like maybe Gaul, and defeat all their enemies, and then take all their spoils, their wealth, sometimes their slaves, or perhaps even taking those people into slavery. And they would load up their wagons and create a long procession and go back to Italy. And as they would near the city, there would be heralds that would ride or run into the city announcing the return of the general with all of his spoil. They would march the slaves and the wagons full of treasure through the streets of Rome, displaying their power and dispensing it upon the populace, giving it over to them as the conquerors. And that's what God is like. God has every right to punish the wicked because each one of us deserves punishment for our sin. Think of the context of Israel. Israel had lived in captivity for 400 odd years. And under Moses, they were let out. But do you remember what happened right before they left? The Egyptians hated them so much and wanted so much to to get away from the plagues that God had brought upon them, that they began giving them their stuff. 
So the people that had one time been slaves, oppressed just because of their ethnicity, plundered the Egyptians and left in victory. And to cap it off, though Pharaoh was so angry about this, when they got to the sea, backed up against it, and were about to be wiped out by Pharaoh's conquering, stronger army, God parted the sea, allowed the spoilers to walk through on dry land, and then crashed the strong waves of the water down upon Pharaoh and his army and destroyed them. Israel was victorious having spoiled these evil oppressors, God blessing his people. So Paul takes this up as a good Jewish rabbi, now trusting Jesus the Christ. And he references this psalm in thinking about what Jesus did. So let's turn back to Ephesians 4 together. Jesus, the one who has given us gifts, is the one who conquers all of his enemies and by distinction blesses us with superabounding gifts. Jesus who spoils his enemies. Jesus who loots his enemies. Jesus who reigns and rules over all evil distinguishes us. There is, there is distinction between the evil and the righteous. What is it that we have done to merit such favor? We who ourselves deserve to be punished, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were by nature, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Generally, that's who we all were. What did God do? He distinguished us. Why? What did we do to merit such favor? Nothing. Why were we chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world? Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4. Not because of anything good in us, but because God loved us. We have been distinguished as the recipients of mercy And now in comparison, and this is kind of the idea of Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8. By way of comparison, though God has conquered evil, all of his enemies, he has blessed us. That's what Paul's driving at here. What does every human born into this world deserve because of their sin? They deserve to be vanquished, conquered. What has God done for his people? not just slightly loved them, not just passed over sins. Notice the distinction here. Punishes the wicked, gives gifts to his own people. Jesus is a conquering king who has and will conquer all evil, all of his enemies. And the great distinction is that instead of conquering us and and. And punishing us, he has blessed us instead. So again, just to clarify, before we get into the section where Paul says how we are to employ the gifts, he clarifies what the gifts are that they've been given to each of us and how we are to view them. We are to to view them with humility. Think about this. And perhaps we can make a, a good 
application or implication here. What do you deserve and what do I deserve? To be vanquished, to be conquered, to be punished, to be led in a procession of slaves over whom Christ has has set his seal and conquered because he is king and, and they are the ones who've been vanquished. We deserve to be in that procession. Shamed, humiliated. What has he done instead? He's brought us in as sons and daughters. And rather than being slaves in his household, forever humiliated for our sin, instead we sit at his table. This means that whatever gift that you've been given, whatever gift that I've been given, and each of us have been given some kind of gift, that we should view it with such gratitude and such humility that when we use it, we employ it, we do it not just because it's the right thing to do, but with right reasons, right motivations, knowing that we deserve the opposite. And likewise, when we serve God's people, we view them as those who are recipients of grace as well, and we live together in a community of humility, that we show kindness and love toward one another. And I think this gives light to verses 1 through 3, which we explored a couple of weeks ago. That we walk in a manner worthy of the calling. That we've been blessed in Christ, not because of anything good in us, because Christ delighted in us. How should it be characterized? Humility, verse 2. Gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. Because after all, we deserve the opposite. But Jesus Christ blesses and cares for his church and he's conquered evil and we should have been counted in that company. But instead he's blessed us with gifts. I think there's also a subtle implication in this passage that that Paul understood Christ to be God himself because the one that David references in Psalm 68 is God. He's Yahweh. Who is Jesus? He's God. He's Yahweh. What is the story of the Bible? We talk about that a lot here just to clarify for ourselves what it is we're reading in context. What's the great story of the Bible? That God in power and love will rescue his people in Christ. When David thought of God, of Yahweh, of his covenant God, how did he view him? He viewed him as one who rescued his people in power and love. And he spoke better than he knew because one who would come from his own family would be the final fulfillment of a rescuer who rescues with power and love. And through inspiration of the Spirit, Paul looked backward at Psalm 68 and saw that it was a subtle prophecy of the one who would come and really fulfilled this promise to Israel, conquering evil and bringing his righteous purposes to pass and blessing his people. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of God's powerful, loving conquest over evil and the restoration of the earth. Not only has Jesus conquered evil, verse 8, he took on flesh and died for his people. Look at verse 9. And saying he ascended, 
What does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth. Verse 8, we've already seen that, that God ascends on high, or specifically, Jesus ascended on high. It's probably meant to David in Psalm 68 that that God was enthroned in the heavens. Or it could even mean that God dwelt with His people in Jerusalem. But whatever David specifically meant, he had the idea that God was in charge, that He ruled, that His people could trust Him. As you've already said, by inspiration of the Spirit, Paul sees this as a coming prophecy of Jesus, the Son of God. How did Jesus ascend? Jesus ascended by going back to heaven from where He originally came. After Jesus died, He was resurrected and then went back to be with God where He is even now. But you don't ascend if you have not first descended. The idea here in verse 9 is that Jesus came down to earth. Jesus took on flesh. He became a real man. It probably also means that he died. Now, we know he did, but that's probably what Paul's saying here in verse 9. So again, in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth? In the original language, Paul is saying probably more than he just came to the earth, when he clarifies that he went to the lower parts of the earth, this is probably the idea that Jesus went to the grave, which means that he died. This means that before glory came, verse 8, before he ascended back to the Father, he would be humiliated. That he would come and take on flesh and limit himself willingly And then he would die at the hands of those he created. Just a couple of weeks, we will celebrate Palm Sunday and Good Friday and Easter, Resurrection Sunday, where we are reminded of all that Jesus did for us, that he laid down his life for us. The humiliation of the incarnation of Jesus the purpose of which was that he would receive a body so that he could be crucified and take our place as a substitute and atone for our sins. This was the purpose of the incarnation of Jesus, that he took on the flesh of humanity, keeping all the laws of God and dying not for his own sin, for he never sinned, but dying in our place as a substitute that we might be brought back to God. Jesus Christ blesses and cares for His church. And He has shown this most clearly by taking on flesh and dying for us. So once again, Paul is turning on the tap. He's reminding us of what we have been given, what has been done on our behalf. How has Jesus Christ, the theme of verses 7 through 10, most clearly blessed and cared for His church by coming and taking our place, keeping the laws that we would not have kept and dying the death that we deserved. But of course, that's not the end of the story. For in verse 10, Paul goes on to say, He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens 
that he might fill all things. So verse 10, he didn't stay dead. He was resurrected and has ascended to heaven where he reigns in and through his church. We already saw in chapter 2, verse 19, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. In chapter 1, verse 19, Paul wants the church to know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age but in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Jesus Christ is God's agent of creation. According to Paul in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17, Jesus not only made all things, he holds all things together, and all things were made for him. But Jesus Christ particularly fills his church. And as he fills the church in power and grace, he's transforming the world. Jesus is bringing restoration. When Jesus cries out on the cross, it is finished. And the reality of the empty tomb was completed and understood. Jesus began the work of restoration. But it continues to this day. Jesus fills the church. And as the church grows up in maturity, which we will see more down through verse 16, we have an impact on the world. We, we are God's agents of restoration in the here and now. Jesus Christ blesses and cares for his church by conquering all evil. He proved his love for the church by taking on flesh and dying for his people. But that was not the end of the story. He was raised and now is with the Father and is ruling over us. This means that the success of the church in the world, to be holy and blameless, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, and to be on mission for God, to make the good news of Jesus known to the world, that though we are called to it, and we will get to that in the coming verses, all of it is enabled by the one who purposed it in the first place. Jesus is the one who makes sure that the church fulfills all of her responsibilities, all of her calling, that, that we collectively walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. Jesus Christ enables it. So these verses, verses 7 through 10, which begin this section on, on what we are to be and do, this section begins once again with Paul turning on the faucet and reminding them once again that they've been given so many blessings. And that's true of us today. Jesus Christ, right now, 
is ruling over this church and is working through this church, transforming each one of us. And as we live in the world around us, bringing his restorative grace to bear on them as well. This means that you must take your calling seriously. Understanding all that Jesus has done for you and is doing for you to transform you, that you will willingly walk in a manner of the manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, so that you can glorify your Savior and represent Him to all who will see. We've already read the verses at the end of chapter two. We are like a temple. And it should be that as people see us collectively as the people of God, that they see that there's something different about us, that we are a holy temple, unique, that we're not like everybody else around us, that we don't walk like everybody else around us, that we're characterized by things like humility and gentleness and patience and so forth. And then we give our lives over to the glory of the one who laid his life down for us. How do we respond to this passage? We'll see that with more clarity in the coming weeks. But I think the first thing that we should walk away with is a sense of of deep gratitude and humility. That the one who has placed such a high calling on us does not leave us to ourselves, but, but even still takes care of us. And I think one of the most active ways that we can demonstrate humility and gratitude is by praying. And this is where I want to park at the end of our time today. We will see down through verse 16 that there is a high calling upon us. That each of us employs our gifts for the maturing of the church. But Paul begins this section by reminding them what they've been given. And I think the way that you make this real in your experience is by leading lives of prayer. I don't mean by that that you necessarily have to have a set-aside prayer time each day, though, though that might be a great application for you. But I mean something more like a posture of prayer, a lifestyle of prayer that begins with something like this. Oh God, you are the God of glory, the one to whom all worship is due. And I don't deserve the least of your mercies, but you have given me your son. And even still, you bless me in him. And you've given me a high calling. And you've enabled me to walk out this high calling. So I'm grateful. Please continue to produce humility in me and enable me to bring you the glory that you're due by the way that I walk each day in love, in obedience, in sacrifice for the good of all around me. Now that might be a good prayer or something like that, to begin your day. I suggest it. But that's more of an attitude of prayer throughout the day. Recognizing the greatness of God, remembering who we were, 
and reminding ourselves of who we now are and all that we've been given and the great calling that is upon our lives. And through prayer, working out this this spirit, this attitude of humility and gratitude, which will result in obedience and loving people around us. How do we respond to these promises that Christ continues to bless us, this church? I encourage you to to lead lives of constant awareness of what you've been given, pleading with God to work this out in reality, in your heart and in your experience, that you might bless other people. I think that's a great way to respond to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 10. Gratitude and pleading with God to transform your heart, which will result in active obedience, which we will see in the coming weeks. So may God cause us to understand all that we've been given in Christ. And may he enable us in humility and gratitude to walk in full obedience in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called for his great glory and the joy of all around us. Thanks be to God who has given us his son, he who has conquered evil, he who died in our place, and he who is resurrected and even now reigns in and through his people. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, now please take these words that your people have been pondering for millennia. May we understand them. May we embrace them by faith with gratitude and humility. May you receive glory in your church as we embrace these truths. And then may we follow up by leading lives of obedience and constant dependence. Do this for your glory. Do it for our joy and the joy of all those upon whom we have impact. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.